Hi, everyone. Welcome to Foresight's Existential Hope Group. So this is a kind of behind the scene um, look at our podcast, which is a new special podcast series that we started uh, this year, where we basically take the few folks that inspired us the most um, and where we interview them, A, on what they're working on currently, but also really what is it that makes them deeply optimistic about the future and um, where could we be going if we can look forward to a very, very, very long uh, future that is hopefully uh, quite full of existential hope. So um, I think um, we already had our kind of like inaugural podcast for the series with Christine Peterson, who co-founded Foresight, and it was uh, really, really fun. I think many of you were actually there um, in, in the actual recording of it. And I think one interesting bit is that we try to make these a little bit more interactive and action-oriented in the sense that we often ask for a day in the life of a, a deeply optimistic day, just to inspire others to think a little bit more concretely about what this future would look like. What we then do in the back end is we go on uh, a newly refurbished existential website and we try to actually um, have um, an arc for created about uh, the specific future that's outlined here. It was uh, longevity focused and the future outline was the day in a life when the first dog gets revived. Uh, which was had a, a very strong cryonics focus. Obviously, this is uh, something that people care a lot about longevity, their own longevity through their dogs. And so this was a way on which um, one could really um, yeah, make that a little bit more concrete. We also, you can also uh, apply to the Gitcoin bounties by writing uh, a story about a day in a life when the first dog gets revived. So we're trying to make it a bit more interactive uh, and binding all of you in and actually getting quite concrete about envisioning positive futures. Now we shift gear today uh, into an entirely new, um, uh, but also deeply optimistic, I think, approach to the uh, future. Uh, this is uh, really very, very much more theoretical, but I think has huge implications for the way that we interact with the universe on the very long run. Um, and we are so, so fortunate here uh, to have Chiara Maletto here. Um, Chiara, I have to say, since uh, your last podcast, um, uh, your last podcast that you did with us, which was now really quite some time ago, uh, was one of the most watched podcasts that we had um, in this series. I think it hit 100K, which obviously isn't really uh, drawn to our great PR around this, but you published a fantastic book uh, since you came on for the first time. We're hoping that we can start with this a little bit. Um, but yeah, Beatrice, do you want to um, give us a little bit of an uh, of an outlook as to what we can expect? Yeah, sure. Um so thank you so much for joining us today and thank you to Kiara for joining us today. Um, <laughs> so, well, the very quick introduction of Kiara is that, you know, you're a physicist and you're at Oxford and you're also a Foresight Senior Fellow, which is why uh, we're especially glad to have you here. Um, and you also recently wrote this book called The Science of Can and Can't, which is, has been very inspiring. I've been reading it recently. Um, and it's especially fun to discuss in this group due to a few things that I want to just sort of dive into. Um, so the book is sort of on this concept of counterfactuals uh, or constructure theories, I think it's called. Um, and it's the sort of new and different approach to physics that you've been working on together with David Deutsch. And it's this idea that physics, as most of us might be familiar with it, it's formulated in a way that's actually very limited and that there's are like a large class of things that science has neglected because of its unwillingness to bring in counterfactuals. And so according to this theory, there are like laws about things being possible or impossible that can 
generate alternative ways of providing explanations to scientific questions. And that um, the fact that we're sort of unwilling to bring in this concept into science is preventing us from making progress on some fundamental problems. And um, I think the the way that it fits into this group is especially in that it's uh, it's about thinking what is possible, actually, rather than thinking about what's not possible. And that's what we're doing in this group a lot. We're thinking about what possible futures are out there. And this is very hard. <laughs> But we, it's important because there are a lot of great things out that, that are possible. It's just that we don't know that they're possible yet. Um, so that's why we're especially excited to have Kara in this group. Um, and it's a fun thought experiment to think about what other great technological inventions are possible that can improve the way that we live. Um, but we just haven't realized that they're possible yet. So, um, yeah, I hope you can tell how excited we are to have you here, Kara. And um, yeah, let's <laughs> let's dive into it. Great. Yeah, perhaps you can bring us up to speed a bit on like what got you started on your current track and what is it that you currently work on. So perhaps you can code uh, what we tried to outline a little bit in your words. And you have a few fantastic examples, I think. Yeah, I think the... Um, so I... The way I came to this work is that uh, so my background is um, theoretical physics, and I, uh, you know, uh, th there's a field in theoretical physics which is um, called quantum information theory, and this is the field where we study how uh, computers can run on um, physical systems that are not uh, kind of ruled by the standard laws of Newtonian physics, but they are ruled by quantum theory, which is like the current best explanation that we have for the microscopic world. And it has some very interesting effects. And these effects are very important to um, speed up computation. So I think that's how like the field of quantum information theory came about. And that's where I kind of did my PhD. And along, you know, while I was doing my PhD, I stumbled upon something that actually was even more interesting than that, uh, which is uh, constructor theory. And uh, the way it happened is that I kind of went to a talk that David gave about uh, this topic where, you know, kind of laid the foundations of this new idea. And the idea was really to go uh, beyond the theory of um, quantum computation um, to cover uh, not just computers, but these more general machines that are called constructors. And so constructors are objects that you can program in order to perform a number of different tasks. And uh, the great mathematician called von Neumann in the 50s uh, thought of a machine that should be the ultimate generalization of the uh, computers that we have now, which he called the universal constructor. And this machine is like a programmable machine that can be programmed to perform any task, any transformations as physically permitted. And, and of course, you can think of it as a sort of all-powerful 3D printer, if you like, um, and, 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 and of course, this machine hasn't been realized yet. Um, and in fact, since von Neumann suggested the general idea, no one actually developed the theory of this machine. But David at the time thought uh, that it would be now the time, the right time to try to tackle this problem of, of having a general theory for, for, for this machine, uh, which is uh, based on the conceptual ideas that we developed in the meantime in the quantum theory of computation. And so I joined in and I think the... The way this went is that I um, then tried to, uh, or, you know, to kind of twist to, to sort of uh, see this new theory 
also as a new way of um, formulating the laws of physics. So not just, uh, you know, the foundations for a, for a new kind of technology in the very distant future, which is this idea of universal constructors, but also as the, as the foundations for a new kind of physics, which is based on um, not dynamical laws, which is what we usually do in physics. We use um, laws of motion to describe objects in space and time and their trajectories. But it's based on putting constraints on what transformations are physically possible or impossible. And these constraints are ultimately are like the very um, things that, that constrain the way in which the universal constructor can work. So in that sense, they provide a theory of the universal constructor. But they also provide uh, general principles of physics, a bit like the conservation of energy or the second law of thermodynamics, but more general than that, um, that can uh, kind of constrain future fundamental theories, the successes of quantum theory and of general relativity. So I think that's like the overall vision of what I'm doing and, and how, how I got to it. Um, well, wonderful. Um, I mean, it's this incredibly far-reaching, obviously. Um, and could you maybe just pinpoint perhaps a few of the um, either applications that could potentially be affected by this or any, you know, practical implications that this theory could have, like either now or, or more on the long run? I mean, all the way from now to universal constructors. Yeah, yeah. It's been like a second, but... Yeah. yeah, I think the universal constructor is really uh, more like the ultimate goal. And as you said, it's, it's like maybe the... Yeah, the very, very far in the future application that we could think of. But I think along the way, there are really a number of promising things that, that, uh, we've been already developing. And so I'll start with some more foundational ones that do with physics. And then I'll kind of build a bit towards more technological, uh, ones. Um, so the first thing I have to say is that the, so physics, uh, is um, in general, what we do in physics is really that we want to come up with ways to explain how, you know, the fundamental building blocks of the universe work. And uh, this may seem very far from applications and, and not very interesting or useful. But actually, it turns out that once we learn about these laws, uh, new laws of physics, we also learn about new limitations for machines that we can build. And I think if you consider the way in which humanity, uh, you know, made progress since the very beginning, uh, even before physics, whenever we discovered something useful, like, for example, the fire or, I don't know, the wheel or stuff like that, um, there was a mechanism that was associated with this discovery. And um, we, we had some implicit theory of how that object worked, right? So, for example, with fire, we understood how to preserve it how to start a fire, et cetera. And later on, I think this became more explicit um, with uh, more obvious uh, inventions like, for example, uh, the heat engines, which were developed together with a new branch of physics, which was thermodynamics. So every time there was like a development in physics, in parallel, we had a development in technology. And I think, um, so this this new, you know, whenever we're developing a new uh, application, you know, a new theory in physics, we could expect that um, around that uh, new idea, um, there the can be many applications that we actually can't think of right now because we don't know about those ideas yet. And in the case of constructor theory, um, we are trying to formulate more general principles that can describe the way in which information works. And I think this is um, very important uh, 
piece of um, kind of theoretical uh, study because um, we know how to uh, manipulate information in a computer, but um, you know until let's say when David and I worked on this, we didn't know uh, which are the regularities in physics that allow for information. And so, um, you know, we just took for granted the fact that we can have information and and that's it. But I think um, with this uh, new principles of constructive theory that we developed, we can now say uh, we have some um, laws that allow for information to be possible in our physical world. And then we can say, well, uh, this corresponds to requiring some transformations being possible, specifically uh, copy-like transformations and and um, um, other transformations like permutations, and and this fact is is interesting because it once we understand what is the thing in the laws of physics that allows them to contain uh, you know to support the idea of information, um, we can then start thinking that these are regularities that we would like to have even in the future laws of physics that we might conjecture beyond the current ones. And and so, uh, you know, we expect that, say, the fundamental laws of physics that we have now, like quantum theory and general relativity, may be modified in the future because um, they kind of clash with each other. And at some point, we will need a better theory that supersedes both. And these principles around information that we have in constructive theory could be very useful to, um, to, to act as guidelines to guess what the next theory could be. So that's one direction. So the direction of using these new principles about possible and impossible transformations as guiding um, ideas to shape a new theory uh, of physics in the future. Um, then we can go into a more applied direction, which is there is the direction of, of, of thermodynamics. So, um, so far, if you, you know, when you talk to a physicist um, who, you know, is, is perhaps more kind of traditionalist and has a traditional view of thermodynamics, um, they would say that thermodynamics is a really useful field that, that can help understanding the limitations of heat engines and machines that can power cars and airplanes, etc. Um, but it's not really a fundamental branch of physics. So, you know, in physics, we have like a, usually a hierarchy of, of how, you know, how much, how, how close to, to the very fabric of reality a given theory is. And thermodynamics is not that close. I, I would say most physicists would put, um, you know, very elementary laws of physics um, closer to the fundamental level. And then thermodynamics is somewhere like a, an approximative and only imagined theory. Um, but this is a bit worrying because on the, one, on the other hand, uh, you know, thermodynamics introduces this idea that there is an irreversibility in the world. And irreversibility is something that we are really um, kind of, using all the time in applications, in machines that we are using, etc. And the fact that um, this isn't very, you know, this is considered as an imagined phenomenon that's not very important to physics uh, sounds a bit at odds with, with part of our own experience. And so constructive theory allows us to uh, develop a, a new version of thermodynamics where um, we can extend the laws that we currently have so that they actually apply at all scales. So that's another direction that's very interesting because um, developing this direction would allow us to have a more general theory of thermodynamics, which doesn't only apply to the macroscopic world, which is what we currently uh, do with, with laws of thermodynamics that we have, 
but it would allow us to uh, develop a, a more general uh, set of laws of thermodynamics that apply to objects at every scale, even microscopic ones. And the third direction is the physics of, of life. So these are the three directions that I'm kind of actively working on at the moment. And, and this is a bit more, um, you know, perhaps closer to, to the universal constructor that we mentioned at the start. Because von Neumann, when he invented the universal constructor, uh, wanted to find a way to mimic in all respects a, a living system. And um, he noticed that the uh, model that Turing came up with uh, of his Turing machine, which is the kind of basis of our computer, uh, could be programmed to do lots of things, but couldn't be programmed to um, create a replica of itself. And that was what von Neumann was bothered about in regard to Turing's uh, kind of model machine. Uh, sadly, we can't, you know, program our own computer to create <laughs> coffee itself. Um, but but he invented the universal constructor, and this machine, among other things, can create a copy of itself. And in that sense, it emulates what cells do in in the physical world. So, um, understanding the the kind of fundamental limitations of a self-reproducing machine is a really interesting question. I don't think von Neumann quite answered it because he uh, studied the universal constructor in a very artificial domain of cellular automata, which isn't quite the real world. Um, so what we would like to do uh, is to develop a theory of, with constructor theory, of the you know, physical limitations of self-reproduction machines. Um, and this is interesting because this would give us a way of understanding what could... Um, you know, what are the, the basic limitations of our technology in trying to emulate properties of life? And that's very interesting because, of course, this would mean a um, number of things for, for our attempts to, say, um, extending life and making it uh, maybe more, more powerful, more resistant, more resilient. Uh, and so that's kind of the third direction that's really exciting to me at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I would say these are the three possible things that kind of lead us to some applications of this new theory. I mean. I think all of them are fascinating. The third one, uh, obviously, I think is really incredibly inspiring. Um, do you have any specific research strands that, for example, um, someone should tug at uh, if someone was new to the field? Like, are there specific, you know, open questions that are quite, uh, yeah, that, that are that are keeping you up at night? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> lots of them. I think. Um, yeah, I think the so in this so it's specifically about this last uh, direction. Um, the, so usually in physics, we like to, to talk about um, regularities of certain um, entities, like, for example, with thermodynamics, you, you can say that the whole thermodynamics is about energy and how energy can be transferred from an object to another. And then you have a heat and work, which are two kinds of related to two different types of energy transfer. Uh, now, with, um, with uh, self-reproducing machines, uh, we, we, we don't quite know what is the substance that they run on. So that's one interesting question. So, uh, we have hints at what that is because we know biology and we have an idea of how biological systems have, you know, come up, uh, through natural selection and, and the, you know, evolution. And we know that in, in this process of creating better and better replicators that are more and more resilient, um, we've somehow selected some kinds of information, some kind of information which is hosted in their genes, 
And this is an example of a resilient type of information that powers the idea of self-reproduction. And if you think about resilient entities in general in the universe <clears throat> that are also complex, so they have some um, aspect to them which is not trivial, then these objects usually contain this kind of information that is um, particularly resilient and capable of causing transformations on the environment and staying unchanged in its ability to do that again. And you can call that quantity knowledge. So knowledge is a kind of kind of information that has this property of being resilient. Now, for a physicist, this is very exciting because th there are lots of questions you can ask about that, that entity knowledge. So is there, for example, a, a law that says that um, how knowledge can be created, um, you know, under what conditions it can be preserved and under what conditions it can grow and become more resilient? Now, these questions are now only formulated at the level of um, informal questioning, descriptive. Uh, but I think, you know, the hope would be to find a, a, a new uh, branch of physics that can answer these questions in a quantitative way, the same way we do, for example, for entropy and energy in thermodynamics. And that's kind of really burning question. And, you know, I would, you know, if someone wants to enter the field at this stage, I mean, that would be a very interesting question to look into right now. Yeah, maybe for leading from perhaps the book uh, into the more uh, long-term XOP questions. What since uh, publishing the book, obviously, <laughs> uh, we have seen it in in, in the sense that our podcast, uh, the the YouTube video, suddenly hit a hundred k hits, and uh, and I know that, for example, on Hacker News and uh, and on a few other uh, media outlets, people were just like vicariously uh, discussing the ideas in the book. But how have you, you know, seen the book received, and has it already spun off like? Um, you know, new uh, research or investigation. Um, I mean, it was, as, at least as we can tell from our local bench, but it was tremendously successful at getting this very abstract, but also incredibly powerful idea across. Yeah, that's a very nice question. I I, I think, you know, I guess once you write a book, then it's it's a thing, you know, going out in the wild on, on, on its own and, and, you know, you lose touch with it in some sense. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a kind of, Again, an example of self-reproducer, right? It's hopefully, you know, hopefully generating more ideas out there. Um, and as far as I can tell, I think the I've had lots of um, interesting feedback, and and I guess um, scientifically, you know, in particular, I think the the idea that was new and I I think uh, created perhaps the most um, interesting comments was the was the fact that uh, you could somehow do without this um, standard machinery of laws of motion that is usually considered to be the fundamental thing in physics and still be capable of making some useful predictions that you can then test. Uh, so this is the thing that, um, you know, we kind of already knew in some sense because we've been using principles in the past to make predictions, like, for example, in thermodynamics. However, it perhaps hadn't been spelled out in, in this general way, the way that, that, that I do in the book. Um, uh, and I think that somehow resonated with lots of people. And there are some interesting experiments that we are trying to devise, to, to devise uh, based on predictions that come from the principles of constructor theory, which is uh, in itself a very interesting endeavor because it would demonstrate somehow this idea that you, know, you can make a testable prediction in the lab Uh, coming from these general principles and kind of work in progress. But I think that's that's one of the interesting spin-offs of the book. Wow, that's much more applied than I could have even hoped for. That's great. I'm very, very curious to check uh, back in on this. 
Uh, all right. Um, um, I'll hand it over to Beatrice to get more into the XOP uh, bits of this interview. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so since this is the existential hope group, I have some uh, more specific questions on the topic of existential hope. And uh, these can all very much relate to your work on constructor theory. But, you know, feel, feel also very free to get creative with these questions. Um, they're really about like thinking very widely and exploring the potential possibilities and opportunities um, that are possible. Um, so I'll just I'll start with asking you what's what's a vision of existential hope as opposed to one of um, existential angst for for the future for the long term future. Um, right. So this is a as you said I think it's quite related to at least the philosophy of constructor theory. And um, very much related to, in a way, the thinking of David Deutsch. So I think you can, you know, some of the things I'm going to say are are quite in line with what he's been advocating. Um, and so I guess, um, yeah, and I, more generally, I think there is a whole philosophical tradition that, that you know, this belongs to, which um, has to do with rationalism and, and fallibilism and so on. And I'll kind of touch on that a little bit as well. Um, I think the... What I find is 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 a is a view of hope for for the future is um, the fact that uh, it's it's possible it's possible to um, solve problems. So that's that's one thing that you know I think most most uh, I, I think initially maybe when you start life as you know as perhaps you as a child you you have an, a natural way a natural thing that that tends to try to avoid problems, right? To sort of minimize the amount of problems that you encounter along the way. And then I guess as you grow up, you realize um, <clears throat> that it's not quite possible to do that because uh, just problems come up. And, and the, but the, the, the good thing is that um, under ideal conditions, I think it's, it's always possible to find some solutions to problems. And that's a very hopeful message. Um, I think both, you know, as a, um, as a kind of um, existential idea, but also in general, even within science, you know, if you if you think of um, each setback that you find in your research as a negative thing, then you probably will be very rapidly get depressed and and you know even give up on your on your task. But on the other hand, if you if you consider the problems as an opportunity for you know understanding your problem better and uh, you know actually making progress, uh, that's actually quite a much more helpful viewpoint. Um, and I think that's, that's a really powerful principle that, uh, is rooted in this epistemology, which is due to, I think, Karl Popper's, um, I mean, Popper has this view that, you know, uh, it's, it's, um, it's kind of rooted into this idea of fallibilism, which says that although we can't avoid problems to crop up, we can, we make mistakes and so on, um, it's it's actually quite desirable to make mistakes and quite often because that that's the first step towards progress towards improving and so that's a really hopeful message that i think it's it's my favorite way of thinking about hopeful views of the future as opposed to trying to avoid problems and becoming static and not not even trying to do anything um and and i think this is rooted a bit in constructive theory as well because what you mentioned earlier i think was that um it's quite right that somehow this opposition between possible and impossible is quite hopeful in itself because 
it kind of says that unless there's a law of physics that says something is impossible, then the rest is possible. And the fact that we haven't yet realized it, it just means we haven't tried hard enough in a sense. And, and so if, you know, if you, if you think hard enough and, and so on, you can come up with the right knowledge to actually bring about the task, which is possible and it's not forbidden by the laws of physics. And that's in itself, I think I kind of like to think of that as a hopeful message as well that comes from the foundations of physics. Um, so yeah, I think that would be my, my kind of take on hope. Yeah, I love that. I think that's very hopeful. Um, and it's, it's something that we, we underestimate the power of problems, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so and if you're talking about solving problems, what's, is there one particular breakthrough that you think, um, could happen in the next five years that would tell, tell you that we're on track to a, like a, a brighter future? scientific breakthrough okay so this is a also very broad question and i think um so okay if, if i kind of go along with this idea of 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 problem solving being important um well i don't know if this will happen in the next five years but i think one thing we haven't cracked yet and it would be really interesting to 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 take a good um a good try at is um, we, so we, we know that, um, you know, from the point of view of humanity, it's really important to come up with, uh, solutions to problems quickly. And, and, you know, we've seen this in the pandemic, right? That we had this problem of, of finding ways of dealing with the virus and vaccines that came along, but I think it was quite nice that we could do it quickly. Now, um, if you think really at the very foundational point of view, it would be very, so we know that the brains, human brains can solve problems. So we know that we can think and find solutions and create new knowledge, but it's not a process that we can do on demand. And it's quite, quite hard to actually um, do it uh, in a reliable way, right? So you've got to be inspired and you have to have the right conditions around you and so on. Um, and I think it, one, one very strong, important problem that we, you know, we, we should solve is to find ways of understanding how to how to program a machine to actually do the same. And, um, you know, we have the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, but I don't think this is enough because these are more like task-oriented type of um, algorithms. Well, I'm, what I'm having in mind is more like an algorithm for a computer that allows the computer to actually um, be as creative at a wide range of tasks in the same way that the brains are. And human brains are, and I think um, you know it's it's um, it's something that we don't know how to do. Uh, so my, you know, something that would indicate that that we are trying to address this problem would be to find um, a theoretical uh, underpinning for the theory of knowledge. Uh, now I don't know if this will happen in five in the next five years, but I think it would definitely give me a good kind of hopeful sign to see that we're moving in that direction. Which, by the way, was already hinted at by Turing in his uh, mind uh, computer and mind paper. He 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 kind of discussed this Turing test, and he discussed his idea of how to distinguish something that is only a machine from something that is actually programmed to emulate a human perfectly. Um, but to this day, I don't think we have um you know we had a good way to fully emulate a human being. Um, and and part of the problem is that I don't think we have understood. Um, from the theoretical point of view, 
the foundational point of view, what it means to be able to create knowledge. And we, we need to crack that problem because it's important for humanity as well, because once we know that, then we can create more knowledge more fa- you know, faster and that will allow us to solve more problems and make us, you know, our civilizations more stable as well. Yeah. What, um, are there any particular risks you see going forward that we undervalue or that we should um, pay more attention to? Um, right. So, yes, I think so. Okay. There are, I mean, lots of risks. Most of them maybe we can't even imagine at this stage. So I think, you know, sometimes it, there is this issue of predicting risk and, and problems that, you know, may come up and we can't even see them. Um, but I want to go with one that's kind of close to my field, uh, because uh, at least I have a view of, of it, which is very, uh, direct, even that I'm working in the scientific field. I think we have, um, so it seems to me that, that, um, we've, um, we've kind of become very comfortable with the tools that we have scientifically, at least in physics. Perhaps it's true in other fields. Um, and so we are, we are using them a lot to do lots of research. Um, but somehow we perhaps are not looking hard enough for generally new disruptive tools. Um, ideas that are really different from, from the ones we are, we've been using for a long time. And of course, I'm kind of trying one of these things myself because I believe that this type of endeavor is very important, but and partly also because, of course, I'm interested in that. But I think it would be very nice if we had more of these attempts because um, it seems to me that because we're worried to fail as, as scientists, we tend to try to do things that are familiar and perhaps a bit closer to you know mainstream things and, and things that have been already thrown out a number of times. But that's not the right way to uh, to solve big problems uh, because we, you know, we... It's usually when you uh, try a moonshot that that you may actually end up with something really groundbreaking and and a true leap in in the in the future. And and it seems to me that we are not very comfortable with failure. So you know the idea that uh, maybe by doing something that's uh, you know trying some idea which looks a bit weird or, or different from the standard ones, you may fail most of the times. You know makes people less keen on trying these things. And in my view is that in science, we shouldn't do this. We should try lots of things, be aware of the fact that most of them will fail, but also that that is like a necessary over, overhead that's needed in order to find the one idea that's really good. And, and it seems to me that this especially is important for, you know, the risk of, of young people, young generations of scientists being um, perhaps uh, trained to, to, to just look into the familiar uh, rather than trying out familiar things, that's a, a huge risk. And I think we should be more, more, you know, more ambitious and trying to, within reason, of course, but trying to really, uh, develop more generally new, um, ideas as opposed to reproducing what we've already been doing for, for, for quite a while. So that's a risk that I think it's, it's very, it's, I think it's underestimated and, and, um, we need to take it seriously. Yeah, I I mean, I appreciate that. And that's very in line with the mission of Foresight, I guess, uh, in terms of that we're really trying to um, get get attention and funds um, and resources to technologies that are, can be considered a bit too out there, maybe um, to be um, easily funded or um, yeah, made advancements on. 
Um, would you would you describe yourself as as optimistic about the long term future? And and if you if you are, uh, what what would you say made you so? Is it this uh, um, relationship with problems that you just take them as they come and tackle them? <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, you know it's been a um, um, yeah. I think I'm naturally optimistic about various things um, in the sense that I have this. Maybe it's because of my science background that I, I think that um, exactly as you said, with enough attention, without enough care, enough um, focus, we as humans are able to solve lots of problems. And I think um, you know, so it's not just optimism about my own you know life trajectory. I think there is a general feel about optimism for humanity in general, for the for the fact that, for the counterfactual abilities of humanity, uh, the fact that we can do lots of things. Um, now I'm not sure about the you know the actual trajectory that we will follow, of course, um, and and I think I'm aware of the fact that because of various you know situations that may um, be developed due to say for example these setbacks that we've had so far, the pandemic was a big one, of course. Um, you know it might be particularly hard to solve problems uh, at some points, but I think I I do have. A, and this is really just an opinion. I, I don't have really a scientific argument for it, but I feel that um, th th there is, um, you know, we've generated a lot of knowledge so far and quite quickly over the past um, few centuries as well. And it seems to me that uh, we, you know, we just keep, we just have to keep trying and and not forget about these, you know, uh, attitudes of problem solving and 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 kind of. Perhaps not fall back on these. Oh, now we have a lot of you know we've 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 uh, we've picked up all the low hanging fruits and there's nothing else to do. That's the thing that we should be um, wary of and trying to kind of go away from that sort of thinking. But as long as we stay on track with with this um, lookout, stay on the lookout for for you know for problems to solve and for new ideas to to be developed. I think we we have a good chance to to have a you know to stir our trajectory towards something good in the future. Yeah, definitely. Um, steering the ship in the right direction. Um, one thing that we tend to sort of think of as very important to make that happen is like um, that we need to start thinking about the counter the positive counterfactual of like a very beautiful positive future, um, but. It often seems that it's very hard for people to imagine this, like people imagining uh, utopias, it tends to feel like either very boring or kind of creepy or uh, something like that. Why do you think it's hard for people to imagine or envision these positive scenarios of the long-term future? And do you think there's anything we can do to change that? Um, well, okay, on the one hand, I think it's it's natural to... Well, I guess it's it's uh, it's one of the mechanisms that that we have in ourselves, and perhaps this is due to, you know, our origin as you know from natural selection. I guess that we, you know, there was a time when when most changes that occurred in our society, um, you know, were, during say the primitive times of humanity, where any change would probably lead to a disaster of sorts because we were not. Uh, very, you know, we didn't have a good technology at the time, and and we were really concerned about, you know, each small step um, away from the, you know, from from the things that we had consolidated up to then. 
so that's the mechanism of self-preservation, I suppose, that makes us think more about gloomy scenarios so that we can, you know, look out for those and defend ourselves from those. Uh, so in that sense, I don't think that's necessarily a bad um, attitude. The only thing is that if we concentrate too much on that, then we end up not being creative enough to imagine, uh, you know, what the good ones should be and how to get there. So, so I think the, um, um, again, I think the, the thing that perhaps we should tweak a little bit in our attitude towards these scenarios is that, uh, we perhaps should be able to rely more on our ability to solve problems and therefore concentrate on, um, you know, finding those problems quick, you know, more quick, you know, more quickly and, and then therefore, you know, solve them and then kind of stir ourselves towards the, better scenarios rather than the gloomy ones. Um, and I think this is important because if you concentrate too much on the gloomy scenarios, then you end up not doing anything. I think that's that's the thing we don't want to do. I think that's very important and it happens both at the level of humanity, but also the level of individuals. I guess, um, you know, stagnation is not good um, because it prevents you from being very, you know, from doing various things. And, and certainly entertaining at least, you know, an equal number of good scenarios as well as bad scenarios would be a good attitude because that might propel you towards the good ones. So yeah, I definitely need, think we need to kind of foster that attitude more. Yep. Wonderful. Okay. Well, um, I'll jump into you because I think uh, this is a really nice segue into uh, perhaps touching a little bit more on the um, interactive and action-oriented parts. Um, I think, you know, you certainly you know, have like, I think a really beautiful mind. And, and honestly, when I, I just remember also reading a beginning of infinity, and I think there's a chapter eight or nine in there that uh, I think also I really uh, sh sh just shined through you in the sense that um, uh, that's obviously a book written by David, but it is a chapter that is deeply optimistic about the future. And like what yeah. you mentioned about, you know, anything that uh, really isn't impossible <laughs> through the laws of physics, you know, is something that we should really, in theory, uh, try to make progress on, obviously, with uh, lots of problems along the way. But but I think, you know, taking it maybe a little bit more on the interactive angle, if someone, you know, if you usually what we what we try to do is really um, try to con concretize it a little bit. So there's this term by um, Toby Ord and Owen Cotton Barrett um, that they uh, kind of took from Tolkien, uh, and that's the term of a catastrophe. And uh, we currently have a bounty out there um, to uh, create a better uh, a, a better um, term for this because it's basically the opposite of a catastrophe. So an event after which the expected value of the universe would be much higher, or i.e. after which uh, we could really uh, look forward to a much brighter future. So um, perhaps like this is a total, um, you know, curveball, but do you have like a term for that? Is there like um, uh, kind of like a good description for what you would uh, consider a deeply optimistic event? And it's totally fine uh, if you don't. And no, I think I, I quite like that term. It's a very good one. And I think Tolkien was very good with, um, you know, with words and so on. So I think I, I quite, no, I think I, I quite like that and I'm happy to go with it. So if, you know, if you will. Okay. Well, then we'll go with it for, um, for a second. And could you perhaps, um, envision almost like a eucatastic moment for us? Um, so that is almost like a day uh, in a life where something happens that is after which, uh, you'd be much more optimistic about the long-term future. So usually what we try to do with, with these um, events is just um, kind of um, allow people to really envision themselves in that uh, in, in that specific future um, where a specific positive event occurred. And, uh, and uh, ideally what we would want to do is create a prompt around this so that people can actually write out uh, a story uh, around this, uh, this day in their life. So would you 
Is there a specific event after which, uh, you know, you'd be deeply optimistic about the future? Um, yeah, maybe one comes to mind. So I, um, I think the, so I think there is an event which, which brings together a few of these things that we've said so far. Um, I'm not sure if it's an event, but maybe a transition that we could go through as humanity. And, um, so I think, um, you know, my, my view is that, you know, if you look at the, at humans in general, Perhaps there are other entities that exist in the universe which are also good at what we do uh, at thinking. But I think we know that humans can think and they can think in a way that allows them to create lots of ideas. And these ideas are actually good to, um, you know, create resilient things. And uh, so from the point of view of humanity and our survival, I think um, we should achieve a state where... Um, more people are able to to just think freely and are not worried about you know day to day problems that have to do with survival, but they can just divert their mind uh, to solving problems in this um, free way. Uh, and so you know, I'm, I'm imagining an ideal situation like what Plato had uh, available. You know, time to think freely, uh, to consider various problems. The same maybe Leonardo also had some pro some kind of time of that kind. Um, I think scientists try to create some, you know, we, we try to create some time in our lives where we can actually just think about these problems freely and in peace. But I think somehow it's really too narrowly um, present in humanity, this ability of being able to just think and not be worried about, um, you know, pressing survival issues. So one event which could improve our, you know, I think our chances for survival would be to, uh, you know, to, to have a, a kind of a, a catastrophe that allows us, uh, you know, allows everyone actually to, in principle, uh, divert their mind to these kind of general problems and, you know, not worry about being hungry or trying to pay a rent or something, uh, but, but be just free to think. Now, of course, it's a very utopia type of uh, scenario. But I'm imagining uh, maybe there there is a way to get there. Uh, we, you know, our technology is supporting us very, very nicely. And, you know, there's some ideas of uh, societies where actually you can imagine that people are beyond the subsistence level and they can actually now just be creative and think of new ideas um, basically all the time. And and so and I think this this type of event should be coupled with another type of event, which I also don't know how to define, but I think it would be nice if we could realize it, where um, where somehow people get to grow up as kids in a way that they they naturally tend to to think in a creative way. So that's another thing that is hard to. So you know when you think of you know with this question, how do we educate children? Uh, one Big question is how do we instill this love for knowledge, for 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 you know creativity? Because it's a fun thing to do, um, but not always. Not everyone actually is into it, and and it's sometimes hard to get people into 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 thinking. Um, and often maybe school schools don't really do a good job at that because you know they repel most people from knowledge rather than actually getting them into it. So so that's another thing that would be a good a catastrophe that we could put together with the first one uh, to to equip people with the knowledge that makes them uh, interested in creating more knowledge and interested in being creative and making that the first priority in their lives. And 
I mean, I don't know how to achieve that, but if that happened, I think um, we'd have lots of, you know, suddenly we had lots more people who are into problem solving than now. And this would help, um, you know, our chances of survival uh, enormously, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I love that. Very concrete. And um, I, I think that, you know, um, there was one video, I think it was from David on Why Are Flowers Beautiful? I don't know if you know that, but that was to me, for example, a deeply inspiring uh, question about, um, you know, that was deeply scientific in its uh, in its nature. But nevertheless, it, it really um, kind of sparked wonder and excitement. And I think that if you usually looked at how many school systems operate, you couldn't really come up with a better way of refraining people from <laughs> from getting yeah. interested and curious about yeah. um, about things intrinsically. And so this video was this immediate antidote. So if anyone is uh, watching this, I really recommend you just Google it. It's really wonderful and uh, deeply inspiring. And I think this is what ultimate knowledge creation could could be like, right? Um, and so I think it sometimes maybe just takes, uh, you know, the the pin of uh, exciting people and then they will, uh, you know, tackle the, pro the problems as they go, you know? So it's more of this inspirational moment really that I think is, is, is a little bit, is, is very different from the, the normal um, crude educational system that we have. And um, yeah, this is a, a total um, also curveball, but um, are you at all interested in the taking children seriously uh, paradigm or is that entirely unrelated? Yeah, no, this is definitely related. I I think, well, um, I've, I've got a, a long uh, lasting interest in, in this issue of how to make, um, you know, how to make a, a better education system possible in some sense. Um, and, and, um, you know, there are various proposals and surely, certainly the fact of taking, um, children seriously, the, the sense that you, you kind of put, um, the idea of fun or, or something that interests them at the center of the education program is certainly a good idea. And I'm not sure how one can, you know, realize it on a large scale. Of course, you know, schools are also there for other reasons. You know, there are some reasons that have to do with. Uh, the way society structured it and so on. Um, but, but I think it would be really important to, to maybe revise a bit what we do in schools, uh, in the light of the idea that we should try to make, you know, to make people really inspired rather than, you know, making them able to tick boxes in the next, uh, exam. Uh, and, and I think I had, you know, I was very lucky with some teachers that were like that for me. They, they really inspired me and usually they, that happened when they diverged from the, you know, prescribed curriculum. And, and, um, I think we should do that more. Definitely. It's very important. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I totally agree. Well, this is, I think a really, and it fits also in really nicely with the point that you made earlier about the incentives within science, um, where people, rather than being very creative and actually just committing a, a bunch of mistakes and, and, and uh, but, but then a few, uh, a few of those could actually pan out really well. Uh, we are kind of like more a steer to be within our lane <laughs> that is quite narrow. Um, and so I think this is probably like a, you know, downstream of how we educate our kids <laughs> to some extent as well. So oh, it's at least the symptom of the same problem. Um, okay, wonderful. Um, uh, so we are, we will try to uh, then uh, put out an, an art piece that is trying to um, uh, take a little bit of at a glimpse uh, of this vision that you described, which, you know, I think, uh, is, is very, very deeply optimistic. Um, I think that, you know, as we're wrapping up here, um, maybe a few of the questions that, you know, um, are a little bit more bringing our perhaps younger listener uh, on, onto a track of existential hope 
is um is there like a specific uh, almost like a you could test you could moment in your own life um that changed the course of your life either like you know an, uh, an experience that you had or someone you met that gave really good advice you already mentioned i think a few good teachers just now uh, but uh, but it was there something that really changed the course of your life and whether or not it's emulatable by other folks that are listening to it but it would be interesting to uh, to see if there was a forming moment in your life or a piece of advice that you got where you can now in hindsight say, hey, look, this this really helped me out here. Um, maybe we can share that if there is one. Yeah, I, I, yes to both. But I think I, I, so in terms of the event that changed, um, I mean, I think when you look back to your life, you see more like a continuum of things. Um, but perhaps there's one thing that I I chose, which was very important, which was the, um, so I think up to, you know, a certain age, I was really into more like, um, humanities and, and, and related things. So philosophy and stuff like that. So, um, let's say up to when I was 18, when I, end, when I finished my secondary school. And I think in Italy, you, you have this system where, uh, instead of specializing early on, I think you just, um, you know, you, you got the school, which has lots of subjects, but. Broadly speaking, I think one one address is more like science oriented, and the other one is more like humanities oriented. And I chose the humanities oriented one initially, um, but then at the end of it, I I just uh, through various interactions with teachers, with my parents, um, my father specifically was interested in physics. I kind of thought, you know, I'm missing something, and and it was a bit crazy. I thought it was a bit crazy to change trajectory because I, I quite enjoyed it, and I, I liked what I was doing. But then I thought, well, you know, how can I miss the rest of, you know, I was very worried to miss the rest of, of knowledge, you know, with, you know, got, got some knowledge about humanities, but now I don't know about science. And, and I think I, I remember this, uh, philosophy teacher who mentioned Popper in her lecture. And, um, you know, she mentioned this thing about quantum physics. And then I went and, you know, asked her what she meant when she meant, you know, she said something that Popper remarked about quantum physics. And she said, sorry, I can't help you because I don't understand it. You know, it's not my field. I'm not a scientist. And, you know, if you, if you want to know about this, you've got to study physics. Um, and that kind of stayed with me. And I was worried. I thought, okay, my philosophy teacher doesn't know anything about this stuff. And I'm not sure I want to be like that. So I want to know. It's interesting. And so, you know, very, very gradually, there was a seed that, that kind of then um, created uh, the, the germ for a decision that I took then later in the summer that year. And I chose to actually do um, physics at the university, uh, and and this was um, um, was a huge kind of gamble in a sense because I wasn't sure at all. And but actually, I loved it. It was like the right thing. And so in that sense, um, that was really a, a, a kind of catastrophe, but in a good sense. Um, and and I think the piece of advice uh, that was um, that was um, kind of important to me i think it's been given to me by various people indirectly and and not so it's it's implicitly given and sometimes explicitly given um by my parents for sure teachers that i mentioned mentors later um david is a master of this but others are two that i met um i was very lucky so the piece of advice is do things uh for fun so like it's it's you know just follow what is fun in science or whatever enterprise you're, you're doing. Um, because if you, you know, there are these considerations you can make about it, but somehow the idea is that 
it's the best bet because, you know, if you, if you do something and then maybe you don't succeed or whatever, at least you've had fun along the way. I think that's somehow uh, what, the way that David put it to me. And I think it's a good idea to put it that way. Um, but, you know, if you chose something else because maybe you wanted to have, a, I don't know, some good career or whatever, and then you end up not succeeding and then you also didn't have fun along the way, that's really bad. So, you know, it's, it's the, swallowing the fun is the best bet. And specifically in a creative work, you have to do it like that because if you don't put, you know, everything, you know, your mind, your heart, everything into what you're doing, it's very, it's very hard to achieve something. And, and, you know, that's, that's, that's really important to put fun ahead of other things whenever it's possible. Uh, right. so that's right. Delight, follow delight. I think it's a, it's a good. Wholeheartedly agree. And I think it's something that Richard Feynman also always held very dearly. Um, and who uh, obviously is a big um, uh, a big influencer for Fawcett Institute as well. And I love what you said about Popper. He was the founder of my philosophy department at LSE, so it was very uh, informed by by his views as well. All right, uh, we're now at the hour. We can't thank you enough for your time. This has been a tremendous blip of existential hope. And um, yeah, I, I I certainly feel um, yeah, it's I I, I certainly feel um, pretty energized for um, for for what could be possible, right? <laughs> um, and so thank you so, so much for joining us, Kiara. I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, you have an incredibly beautiful mind and um, I, I could, would encourage everyone to uh, get out there uh, and buy the sides of uh, Ken and Khan. It's a really, really wonderful day, beautifully written. And um, thanks a lot for joining. Um, yeah, and thanks a lot for all of you and for the group for joining. And um, I'm hoping that uh, we will have the EXO piece out soon. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. Thank you.